Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Good morning and welcome to this week's episode of Real World Talk. Today, we're joined by Matthew Ong of The Cancer Letter. Matt is an award-winning investigative journalist and health policy writer with over eight years of experience in oncology, covering precision medicine, surgery, cancer informatics, drug development, and medical devices. We're so excited to have you for this episode and we welcome Matt. Matt, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to first humbly note that I don't have a PhD in data science or computational biology, but thanks for having me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we really appreciate it. Every time that we read the cancer letter, we come away with a wealth of information. So you really provide a great service to the space. And yeah, just very excited to have you here today. So the cancer letter has been the leading source of information or one of the leading sources of information that has helped shape oncology and the space since uh, I think 1973. Mm-hmm. I know you've been with the publication since 2012. Could you tell us a little bit more about the cancer letter and just your time there? Yeah, sure. We're based in DC and it's a small shop, really. It's Paul Goldberg, my editor, me. Katie runs our operations and we've got one more quarter. So it's really about four full-time employees as of now. Yeah, I joined straight out of college in, uh, in 2012 and 2013. Back in the day, the cancel letter was just this PDF. Well, it depends on how far you want to go back. Before that, it was a mail. People would wait for their Sunday mail, the cancel letter, and it's an eight-page PDF. It was mailed and then it was just published online and you can just go in and download it. There were no stories online the way we have it now. So when I joined the cancer letter, I, I was part of it because they had a very strong investigative focus, and I wanted to do that for my career. I was also already a science geek well before I went to college. So I said, well, this is a great marriage of journalism and science. Let's do it. And I tried to modernize the cancer letter a lot over my eight years there. And so I'm really glad um, that we have the kind of product that we have now. Great design. We've got a good website coming up soon. We went from about 100 institutional subscribers, meaning hospitals, government agencies, etc. When I joined to over 250 now. So I think we have the most targeted audience in oncology. So great time. I still enjoy working here. So yeah, glad, glad we're useful. Incredible growth, great innovation, and definitely a great resource. What I'm curious about, and I always wonder this, and just when we give it a read through each week, just what are the challenges and even as well as the benefits of putting something together that's super informative? You cover stories from across the country at a really fast clip. Can you just talk about kind of what you face on kind of a week to week basis in, in putting this together? Yeah, it's a lot. And I'm sometimes surprised at the amount of work that we put out because it's anywhere from 30 pages to 50 pages every week with only about three writers. So I do wonder how we accomplish that sometimes. But it's the, the weekly cadence kind of gives us the time to breathe. 
instead of like, oh, we got a new story that we need to get out on day one. You know, so we don't do a lot of day one news stories because you can rely on a lot of the lay media to provide that kind of analysis. But we want to give our readers what they're actually paying for, which is information that they can't get anywhere else. So having that weekly cycle gives us a bit of time to kind of like, all right, we've got a Monday meeting, get the stories in and publish on Friday. So the downside maybe is that we, we don't have a, an infrastructure for putting out stories on a daily basis because sometimes you've got breaking news stories. Um, and we do do that, but I'm very happy with the kind of structure that we have right now. Great. Well, it's super informative. So once again, thank you for everything you do on this side of things and super happy that you're no longer mailing it. <laughs> 40 to 50 pages coming through in the mail. Well, it, it, was, it was eight pages until about 2013, 2014 when, when I joined. <laughs> so just transitioning into what I'm most curious about and maybe what we can kick off to is what are you seeing out there in terms of the most promising technologies in the space today? I think you have a really kind of good outlook and just view of the industry as a whole. I'd love to get your take on the most promising technologies. Right, right. Yeah. So I do know, I do want to know that I'm not a part of a health IT company. I'm not a part of an academic cancer center, but working in a cancer letter really gives me that kind of front row panoramic view of rapid developments, right, in oncology. And I enjoy working with some of the smartest people in oncology. I think that's a great opportunity for any reporter. So, and we're talking today, right, because of two of those revolutions in ecology over the past 10 years or 20 years or more, really. Uh, the first would be the mainstreaming of the molecular approach to cancer management, immunotherapy, combination therapy, cellular therapy. And the second is probably the advent of cancer informatics in a sense that it's no longer a pipe dream. It's here and we're now a long ways from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, right? The uh, economic stimulus package that started turning paper records into fossils, figuratively speaking. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the most promising things? Uh, and before I answer that, I think it's good to talk about what are we doing right? What is the feel of cancer informatics doing right? And I think over the past at least six years, I think it's a sign of better times to come when we're at a point of curating you know, really very sophisticated use cases and pilot projects, you know, with very convincing data and a level of methodological rigor that can support equally convincing conclusions. So it's kind of that whole framework that is starting to make this happen on a systemic level. And I think a very good example of a project that I think CODA is involved in would be the most recent phase of a pilot project on the development and validation of real-world endpoints. It's the one led by Friends of Cancer Research, you know, 10 collaborators, really unprecedented level kind of, of collaboration for a real-world evidence project. And so I think that work in non-small cell lung cancer, melanoma, that's some very important, very resource-intensive benchmarking work to say, hey, this is proof of concept that there may very well be real utility and feasibility in tra transforming real-world data, real-world evidence, something that we can harness for you know, regulatory purposes. And we can talk about more of that later. I can go on about more promising technologies if you want me to continue. Yeah, no, I, I think we could really build on that. So you acknowledged a great deal there. And really want to dig in on those kind of key tech advancements. What do what you think is really kind of leveraging the, the policies that have been put into place that have been implemented over time? What tech has been kind of pushed out to kind of build on that and kind of create the momentum we're seeing today? 
oh, wow, we can talk about the most obvious kinds, which is imaging, right? Um, we've got algorithms that can beat humans at chess. We've got algorithms that are as good or better than trained pathologists at diagnosing tumors just based on the slides. But I think from advances like that, we've come to the point of, I recently had a very interesting conversation uh, with a, a company in Paris, really, about how artificial intelligence may already be capable of systematically predicting RNA-seq profiles from whole slide images of cancer cells, right? And speaking of the molecular approach to cancer management. So what does that, what does something like that mean? So it, it means that we're at a point where maybe an oncologist, not too far in the future, might be able to pull up a slide of a tumor biopsy on a screen and without having to order a biomarker test, see the molecular characteristics of the cancer. So I think that's really cutting edge in, in my opinion. And so the answer so far appears to be it's quite possible and we've got proof of concept that this works. So like many of the other technologies in artificial intelligence and machine learning, there's obviously a lot more finessing that needs to happen. But I think it's impressive that the informatic space that we're now in is capable of predicting the expression of genes involved in cancer development, many cancer types. Uh, you can take specific sets of genes and say CD3 receptor encoding genes and use those to produce a precise heat map of gene expression. There's also the ability to predict tumor status, you know, response to therapies. For example, that the model that this company was uh, producing performed well at predicting the microsatellite instability status of the tumor samples, which in turn can predict patient response to immunotherapy. And that's kind of where we are. That's what we want, right? And so, you know, FDA has approved a bunch of drugs for those indications in MSI high in colon cancer, for instance, Devo, Yervoy, Keytruda. I'm sure there's so much more, but that's only one example. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. Certainly another example of kind of the groundbreaking catches that the cancer letter really monitors and kind of brings to light. So really, really appreciate that. Wanted to kind of flip it on the other side and talk a little bit about what you've seen as, as kind of failures, right? So with any sort of new technology, new innovation, you have your ups and downs. And so talk a little bit about what we have learned or what we can even learn from the past failures of machine learning and AI in the space. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I think when you look back at past examples of vicious informatics projects in oncology that maybe didn't deliver what they promised, well, the key commonality there is over-promising. So that's not to say that you don't need big budgets, you don't need big goals, big budgets, big goals, those are fine. But I think from the coverage that we've done, some of the three basic things that we see are needed to turn budgets into goals in this space are a solid scientific agenda that is actionable, rigorous methodology, and a team of data scientists that just world-class to be able to make that happen, and just a lot of peer review. You cannot skip that. Everyone knows that endeavors like these are extremely resource-intensive. You've got to make sure you've got so many things, computing power, you've got to build the electronic data warehouse, interface with the EHR, make sure that there's interoperability to begin with, scrub the data, create an entire ecosystem of common data elements, algorithms to structure data, data and mine it, and then find use cases and test it. So that's like, that's more than a PhD thesis right there. <laughs> so many things can go wrong. So I think it's equal parts of vision and execution. And uh, speaking of the past, some of our stories about failures in 
Cancer Big Data will appear at some point, shameless plug, in our new kind of sister publication. It's called the Cancer History Project, and I believe we'll be talking to Paul Goldberg and Otis Brawley, who are the chief editors of that project. We launched it earlier this year to dovetail with the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act of 1971. So we've got a big editor editorial board with leaders from across the field, many con contributors, so I would encourage all your listeners to check it out at cancerhistoryproject.com. But going back to the failures, um, we're also at a point where I think cancer informatics isn't something you can do anymore on an island. It's getting harder and harder. We've got an ecosystem that is becoming more and more integrated. So for any company or group to say, you know, hey, well, we've got all the data and expertise and we're only going to make everything 100% proprietary since it's our own data to begin with, that's becoming more and more difficult. And that was the whole point, I think, of the cancer moonshot of 2016, right? Then Vice President Joe Biden went from one cancer center to another to say, hey, you guys need to collaborate and share data, you know, break down those silos and the redundancy of your efforts. I get you need to make money and you know, profit off your business models. But hey, look, the banking system managed to do that while coming up with a common infrastructure that works. Um, that's basically what he said. So I think that's where the field is at the moment prevent history from repeating, you know, there's an emphasis on the need for collaboration and data sharing and a more rigorous curation and annotation of data repositories to give people the ability to do the powerful analyses that need to be done. Great. Thanks for that. There was a lot there. And thank you for highlighting the Cancer History project that will be coming out in just a couple of weeks, is it? Is that right? I think so. I don't know. He's Excellent. Well, I'll keep an eye out for that. And our listeners should as well. Zooming in on real world data, wanted to get more of a sense around, and I think you were kind of getting at this in your last response, just around kind of making it more standardized, right? What are the data standards that need to happen? What are the common core elements that need to be kind of featured? Have you been seeing any conversations around that or have any insight on what it will take to kind of make RWD just more common from institution to institution? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's there's so much history there that leads up to the conversations that we're having today, which is how do we standardize data in a way that everyone can collaborate and use it together? So going back to your question about what are some of the key advances that brought us here, right? And that's the part that I kind of skipped a little bit. But I don't know if I can speak as much uh, about tech advancements as I can about in in innovative frameworks. I mean, genomic profiling, biomarker assays, RNA-seq, next generation sequencing, all the technologies in the toolkit. That's what really enables the kind of precision medicine and targeted therapies and immunotherapies that are being developed and used today, right? So I think what's equally important are those bold visions and collaborations that have taken place in that same time period to create conversations about modernizing trials, regulatory science, uh, changing the standards of care, and not to mention uh, national coverage determinations by CMS. So I think leading up to the question of data standards, I, I think no one disputes the role that the 21st Century Cures Act of 2016 played in giving FDA the mandate to figure out how to use real-world evidence in its regulatory decisions, right? That's kind of like that catalyst. It's like everyone's like, oh, now we have to make this work. It's not to say that the efforts didn't exist before that, but now there is a regulatory impetus. So advances in computing aside, I think in at least three recent events, I'd argue played an important role in democratizing cancer research and cancer informatics and making that accessible at least in 2020. 
So you know, the first one would be innovative trial designs. LungMap, for instance, in 2013 was one of the those novel trials, trial designs that came up where you can test multiple agents on multiple arms. So and the second thing is you've got the bovine and cancer moonshot of 2016, which I'm sure everyone in oncology is you know, very familiar with, which kind of pushed the entire conversation on cancer informatics and put that White House public spotlight on it. And number three is obviously the urgency of COVID-19. Not So it's a combination of two of, two of the previous points, right? Multi-arms trials will use to rapidly test multiple investigational agents for COVID-19. That came from oncology, I think, and the real-world data infrastructure that received that kind of public boost in the moonshot also helped set the stage for all the research that's being done on COVID. So speaking of data standards, if we're still going there. We certainly are, yeah. Yeah, so I think that there is a this year, there's definitely going to be even more of a push for creation of that kind of common nomenclature. In 2019, there was a big effort by the American Society of Clinical Oncology called MCODE, M-C-O-D-E, that published a set of common standards for cancer data elements. So I think they're still working on it. It's the latest set of standards designed to grow into kind of like a common language for oncology. That's the goal. By enabling EHRs to interoperate and generate essential patient outcomes data with everyone else that's using it. So meaning if something like that succeeds and if it's adopted by major EHR vendors, Epic, Cerner, et cetera, you know, perhaps this set of data elements would be streamlined across broad swaths of ecology. Reliance on these common elements, I think, would enable researchers to study drug efficacy and kind of use the routine clinical data that they have to generate research and generate you know, regulatory-grade conclusions in real time. And what's the latest, obviously, is the uh, NCI's Childhood Cancer Data Initiative, which was started, I think, in, was it in 2018, 2019? Yeah, within the Trump administration, but it's an outgrowth of the moonshot, really. And we, we can talk more about that. So that's definitely on the forefront. And I think everyone is looking forward to what they can come up with. Matt, I love that you have the kind of the front row seat to these developments and kind of seeing the policy become a reality. <laughs> I'm really, really just so impressed and really enjoying this conversation. So thank you. So technology is is a wonderful thing. I think you've listed out countless examples of how it's advanced the field, but there is a technology divide in some cases, and I wanted to get your take on it. Regarding kind of real world evidence and underserved populations, where would you say that divide really falls? Is there an access technology and even an immunotherapy divide? that would exist here? Definitely. Uh, and it can divide on many levels. I mean, it can run along you know, racial fault lines, which are often delineated by socioeconomic status, where you live in your zip code. Yeah, all of those things. I'm happy to go into it in greater detail. Um, here, I have to mention two names, uh, Drs. Otis Brawley and Robert Wynn, who have talked and written a lot on these issues with us at the Cancer Letter. So I'll have to credit a lot of what I've learned with their mentoring, really, while editing their submissions and in my conversations with them. So fundamentally, the question that we're asking here and that you're asking is, you know, as big data comes to cancer care, and how can we ensure that it is addressing issues of equity, right? Not just making advances and pushing research forward, and that these new technologies would not further entrench the existing disparities that we have in cancer. So I, I think to provide some examples, uh, one that you might be familiar with was a cancer informatics product that some have argued is prejudice 
because it relies on data from a population of U.S.-based doctors at only one institution. So something like that, that raises questions, right? Does it reflect the particular preferences rather than only expert information? Can be debated. So in in addition to considering clinician bias, uh, I think we must also consider that the lack of diversity in the field of AI developers and engineers impacts the systems they design. And I think this has been well written about and well studied in Silicon Valley field. For illustration, Apple designed its health app to be a comprehensive health tracking tool, but it didn't include menstrual tracking until 2015. So thinking about that, you know, maybe it's not that surprising, right? Considering the engineering team is predominantly male, but it's instances like that that we can do better. So I think even if data sets did include adequate demographic diversity, as an, another example, you know, historical biases, racial biases, for instance, may remain in the data. For example, a database used for AI could have an adequate amount of data from Black participants, but because of historical inequity, inequities, these participants may disproportionately have cancer diagnosed at later stages. So that kind of skews the data. There's also an immunotherapy divide with the kind of like the latest advances that we have and treatments. When you look at clinical trials for checkpoint inhibitors, as a great example, there is an obvious racial disparity in enrollment. There is a study that evaluated phase two and three clinical studies using pembrolizumab or IPI, ipilimumab, for the treatment of head and neck, prostate and lung cancers. And as it turns out, the study found that 79% of trial participants were Caucasian or white, you know, while 14% of the participants were Asian, 3% were African-American, and 4% were other or unknown. So that's data demonstrate ongoing inequities in clinical trial participation that will exacerbate the emerging you know, immunotherapy divide that we're talking about, and which brings us to the issue of access. If you want me to go on, I'll talk about access. Certainly, no, you're, you're hitting a lot of points that are important to CODA, so, so please go on, yeah. Yeah, this goes beyond a um, disparity in access, I I think, to just technology and information. It's much more than that with some patient populations, particularly the elderly, maybe also the uh, the urban-rural divide. So clearly, when there is a lack of representation or diversity in your trial sample, uh, you run the risk of limiting the generalizability of research findings and access to high-quality oncology care. But that's a given. So I think here it's worth mentioning efforts like NCI's community outreach and engagement requirements for cancer centers seeking NCI designation. So that concept of outreach and engagement is not entirely new. I understand it's been part of the portfolio of many academic cancer centers since the signing of the National Cancer Act. But since 2016, the NCI made the COE requirement an essential part of the reissuance of the cancer center support grants, which a lot of cancer centers rely on for many of the things they do. It's also a level of prestige, right? So I think that's one way of ensuring that top tier institutions, you know, not that they pair their esoteric pursuits, if you want to call it that way, with real world change in the communities that they serve. So yeah, to wrap up my point about clinical trial enrollment, I think that's one area in which cancer informatics and especially clinical trial matching tools can play an outsized role by connecting traditionally underrepresented communities to trials that are changing uh, standards of care on an almost weekly basis. And well, it seems nowadays that they perhaps otherwise would not have access to. Great. Thank you, Matt. It's a topic that 
we'd love to stay connected on, kind of push forward some of the initiatives that Coda has at the forefront for 2021 and beyond, because we certainly agree with the points that you made. Looking ahead, there are a lot of initiatives that you cited that are either maturing and really coming into the peak of their impact and others that are just getting started. Would love to get a sense of your kind of predictions for the next calendar year, if not the next two calendar years of of what we can really expect to see in the space and kind of bring in this whole conversation together. Right. Uh, I think this is a really high level item on everyone's mind, you know, which is the Biden administration, right? Joe Biden and Joe Biden have clearly done a lot for the cancer moonshot in 2016. And so I think there's a lot of high expectations on them to kind of maybe go beyond that and capitalize on the momentum that they generated during the cancer moonshot. So a lot of folks I've talked to have said, well, speculated that there may be a renewed focus on areas in oncology beyond therapeutic discoveries or treatment, maybe cancer prevention or survivorship, definitely a focus on affordable health care. But I think kind of like continuing that topic of uh, disparities that we were talking about, I think it's safe to say that most of us have been pleasantly surprised by the immediacy which they are engaging the field and delivering, delivering on expectations already. Within a month after the inauguration, uh, Dr. Joe Biden has already issued what I consider to be you know, an unprecedented presidential call to action on reducing health inequities and cancer disparities. I mean, She's already visited Whitman Walker Health here in DC, which was founded in the LGBT plus community and, you know, that continues to serve historically marginalized populations. She's checked in with NCI. She's visited VCU Massey Cancer Center in Richmond to talk about disparities. So I, I don't think I'm being partisan here by saying that, you know, all of this is very encouraging, especially with the kind of mortality data I've been seeing coming out of the pandemic. You know, it's really tragic, right? I don't even have to look beyond the city I live in to find evidence of that kind of disparate burden. Just a week or two ago, I looked at the data and it was really quite appalled to see that 75% of the people who died from COVID-19 in DC have been Black or African-American. 75%. In a contrast, that 75% number with the fact that less than 50% of DC residents are Black or African-American. Yeah. So I, I think many people in oncology are expecting the Biden White House to act on health inequities. I'm very interested to see where they're going to take it. And it would be really wonderful to see a White House task force or a program that specifically focuses on these issues and also to kind of work the cancer informatics angle that we're in to figure out where artificial intelligence and machine learning can be deployed to find and create concrete, actionable solutions for underserved populations. So I, I think that's something that I'm very much looking forward to, uh, hopefully within 2021. So yeah, I also expect to hear more from Biden's team on encouraging collaborations with NCI's data federation efforts. So it's specifically the Childhood Cancer Data Initiative, which I consider to be the bellwether for a bigger, more comprehensive data federation across all cancer types, not just pediatric oncology. And it's you know something that Nat Sharpless had a vision to push forward and everyone I've talked to is on board with it. So what is the CCDI? It's somewhat of a pilot project and pediatric oncology is considered to be the perfect setting for that because not only is there an unmet need for well-curated data repositories for childhood cancer, it's also one area where you've got smaller sample sizes that can serve as test cases, if you will, for harmonization of data. 
so it's so I think this podcast is um, really timely because I just finished a story about St. Jude Children's uh, Research Hospital. They're collaborating with NCI on the CCDI. I know it's a lot of acronyms there, and they're currently in the process of deploying you know analytic tools across cloud databases. So that's kind of novel, right? Within this space, previously it was like, oh, do we need to build an application programming interface to make that happen? But eh, that's really hard. Let's just try and move our tools from one to another and see if it works from, say, St. Jude Cloud to NCI's Genomic Data Commons and vice versa and see if that happens. So I'm quite excited to see how that pans out in the future. They've already released a master plan for how it's kind of like a hub and spoke model for building uh, the data federation. So yeah, a lot more to come. I'd also like to give a shout out here to Kids V Cancer which is a policy think tank here in D.C. and an advocacy organization in pediatric oncology for they've got a new effort that they're working on to figure out how to get Medicaid coverage. I'm speaking, I said earlier that without coverage, sometimes it's hard to like make these things work. To get Medicaid coverage for tumor profiling for kids with cancer. So what would that do? That would create kind of like a data pipeline that would then help populate the CCDI. So I think that's really important. And finally, coming back to one of, I mean, there's so much going on. I'm just going to pick a few highlights that the cancer letter is focusing on. And coming back to one of the pilot projects I mentioned earlier in our conversation that CODA is involved in, the Friends of Cancer Research Project on real-world endpoints, it's something I know a lot of health IT companies and biopharma companies are watching really closely because they're all competing, right, for the same kind of data resources. So in September 2020, the collaboration announced the results of their latest analysis of real-world outcomes from treatment of non-small cell lung cancer and melanoma with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And that analysis was, I kind of want to use the word groundbreaking here, uh, being very conservative with that, because it showed that the magnitude of benefit obtained from these immuno-oncology agents and treatment regimens in the real world is directionally similar outcomes in a conventional clinical trial. So they're quite far into that benchmarking effort that is needed to validate and to see if this works as a proof of concept at this point, right? So for instance, real world overall survival and time to treatment discontinuation and comparing that with traditional and conventional OS and PFS, etc. And I'm sure Jeff Allen is probably has probably talked to you guys at length in that separate podcast. So I can't say the utility of real-world endpoints is something that can be realized immediately in 2021 in, in terms of incorporating these endpoints into FDA's regulatory framework. That's definitely the goal. So a lot of exciting work, a lot to look forward to there. And if you allow me to continue, since we're on the topic of FDA, <laughs> I can't skip this point. There's going to be a renewed push for consolidating the agency's cancer portfolio under the Oncology Center for Excellence, you know, which is led by Richard Pastris, their dedicated uh, cancer center at FDA. It was created with Biden's urging back in 2016, if you may remember. And I understand that there's some work left to be done. So they're going to need full funding and all of that and some potential internal restructuring within the agency to give the OCE more leeway to be the um, regulatory science incubator that it was designed to be. So yeah, FDA has been so proactive if, if you're going to ask me about, you know, how's FDA doing in all of this, in my opinion, with issuing guidances and in working very closely with its partners to come up with guidances and, well, and regulatory frameworks. So honestly, in my time at the cancer letter covering cancer informatics, I've really heard nothing but good things about FDA's work on RWE since 2016. 
So personally, I'm invested in following their ongoing work, perhaps specifically on the utility of clinical decision support software and systems. Uh, so I'm going to try and follow that closely. Great, great, Matt. Thank you. Just to kind of package that all together. So looking ahead at 2021, there was a lot there. I think we're looking at kind of the developments out of the new administration from a policy standpoint, looking at the collaborations in the space, if I, if I have that down right, especially around those real world data partnerships. And finally, the regulatory work coming out of the FDA. So if I have this right, it sounds like we stay informed on the cancer letter side. We'll We'll kind of see how these trends come to be and really stay informed. Do I have that right? Yep, definitely. Excellent. Well, this has been super informative for me. I hope all of our listeners have enjoyed it. Matt Ong from the Cancer Letter, cancerletter.com is just the go-to. Start your week there and, and you'll always have a sense of where we're headed. Matt, anything to end on or close out with? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. And my editor, Paul Goldberg, who is, I think, just about the best living repository for institutional knowledge and cancer history, is going to laugh at me for saying this, would often finish reading my stories on cancer informatics and say, wow, you're quite the cheerleader, aren't you? Good for you. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm. So as someone who is, as a journalist, you want to like you know, be skeptical about a little bit about you know, new advances and be careful about overpromising, right? As I mentioned. But in my opinion, as someone who is a already a regular user and consumer of AI and its trappings, all the lights in my house are controlled by natural language processing algorithms already. So I see very little reason to play like the perpetual cynic. So I think it's probably important to keep the skeptic and the devil's advocate hats within reach. But I think the field has matured to the point where most players and stakeholders recognize the importance of exercising rigor while innovating um, in cancer informatics. So kind of to end with uh, Amy Abernethy. So in the time leading up to her current position as uh, Deputy Principal Commissioner and Chief Data Officer at FDA, she would often tell me that well, you know, cancer informatics it's a field in which a rising tide lifts all boats. So I very much buy into that concept. I very much see the value on my part of continuing to provide some of the most in-depth coverage of cancer informatics, you know, coverage you can't really find outside of the cancer letter. So yeah, I am looking forward to all the exciting developments to come in the next year or two. It's a great place to end on. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Kevin. And thank you for everyone for tuning into this episode of Real World Talk. Look forward to having you on the next episode. In the meantime, be well. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.